Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Marcy Dermansky Editorial Services. Are you a writer with a novel in the works, a memoir, a book of short stories? Do you need some help editorially? Do you need some editorial assistance? Go to MarcyDermansky.com and find out more about how to get edited by Marcy. She's an editor. She'll help you make your book better. MarcyDermansky.com. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Right. Just one person at just one time. Right, 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 everybody. Here we go. This is the Other People Podcast. Here we go again. The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listing. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. And uh, I hope you're doing well. Are you doing all right? Are you hanging uh, in there? You maintaining a grip on your sanity? ever so tenuously. This podcast is now entirely free. Quick, friendly reminder. Every episode is now free. The paywall is gone. If you want more information, you can listen to the last episode where I went over it at length. But uh, I did away with the paywall. Made it entirely free. I freed the podcast. It's all free. The app still works. It even, it works better because now everything's free. The app is free. My guest today is Abigail Ullman. She is uh, an Australian writer with a debut story collection out from Spiegel and Grau. It's called Hot Little Hands. Abigail is a Stegner fellow. She's lived over in the States. She was once deported. We talk about that. She has inside information on how that process goes. In case you're worried. <laughs> uh, I've been calling a lot of Republicans. That's what I've been doing in my free time. If you follow me on Twitter, then you're aware of this. I don't know what else to do. It feels like the most productive thing I do. I write letters by hand. I pick up the phone. I call people in positions of influence, I reach across the aisle as an American and I try to forge a consensus or persuade or at least express myself. And I want to emphasize that I'm always very polite. I know that sometimes in the 
realm of civil disobedience, you have to be a little bit impolite. But I'm a big believer in just be polite. You can be staunchly opposed and forceful in your rhetoric, but you don't have to be a dick. And moreover, if you're a dick, then you undermine your own argument because the person you're trying to persuade just tunes you out. You're not going to make any difference. You're only going to calcify divisions, make people more firmly entrenched. We got to communicate. We got to dialogue. That's what I think. And, you know, yeah, some people are unreachable. There's some people who are so far gone ideologically, so wed to their own beliefs that there's just no talking to them. But these people are the minority. I think these are the minority. It's about the wide middle and it's about moving the middle. You got to move the middle. That's what we got to do. It's what I keep telling myself. Got to move the middle. I like that phrase. So yeah, that's what I've been doing. A lot of heartening conversations, surprisingly heartfelt and heartening conversations both ways where I'm like, God, I'm really concerned. And the person on the other end of the line, a Republican staffer, probably someone in their twenties is like, yeah, me too. You would be surprised. And I was tweeting about this just a minute ago. What I've noticed is that the female staffers tend to be nicer. Female GOP staffers tend to be easier to talk with than the males. I don't know if that's coincidence or what, but it's the, it's the way things have gone for me over the phone. I wrote a letter to Lachlan Murdoch. <laughs> it's another thing I did this week. I poured my heart out to Rupert Murdoch's son. Wrote him a letter. He's now the, the co-chairman of Fox News, essentially. He's going to take over for Rupert eventually in full. And I'm just like, come on, man. He's not, he's like basically my age. I'm like, please just stop with this. This is your legacy. Can you imagine Fox news is your legacy. Is that really what you want? I didn't say that to him in so many words. You know, I, I did say it to him in so many words, but I was much more delicate about it. I just like, you have a huge responsibility with this media outlet. Dear Lachlan, Please, Lachlan, hear me now. <laughs> the question, too, is like, will he get it? I think part of my gambit was that, like, how many people really write to, to Lachlan Murdoch? How many citizens? He feels like somebody in a position of high influence when you, you know, when you add it all up, as, especially as a member of the media. He's got a lot of influence, a lot of power over the uh, discourse. I encourage you to write very politely to Lachlan Murdoch. Hashtag Dear Lachlan. We got to get a Murdoch on our side. Got to get a Murdoch to see the light. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. 
It is The Long-Awaited Craft Book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest today is Abigail Allman. Uh, had a great time talking with her. Her debut story collection is called Hot Little Hands. It's available now from Spiegel and Growl. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Abigail Allman. Why, first of all, why are you here? <laughs> what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> Um, actually it's a weird story. I mean, I lived in the States like on and off for seven years and then I moved back to Australia a few years ago and I've sort of come in and out since then, but it was really the election actually. It was really, I was in Australia when Trump got elected. It was really, you know, upsetting and distressing, especially thinking about all of my friends here who most of who are in, you know, the kind of groups that he was attacking throughout the campaign and started to think about how vulnerable they were and it ended up I ended up just wanting to be here f- during the inauguration and go to the women's march and just kind of be here which actually when I was at the airport leaving Australia I thought I should have just gone to the mountains of Nepal and pretended none, none of this is happening because I didn't have That's to be there That's what I want to do. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there is something about being in a place um yeah when something like that is happening that is actually I don't know. It kind of, I, I was glad to be here and to feel, also, to feel like you're doing something actively to resist it or I don't know. I, I get that. It can be a comfort in a way to engage. Yeah, exactly. And sort of exercise that solidarity in a way that's not just being on Twitter in the middle of the night. And, um, <laughs> and then also, um, I, 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 feel like I came to understand, like it's more, you understand the nuances of a situation more. Um, because, you know, around, at, around the time of the Women's March, there were people, like there were people holding signs saying like, free Melania and stuff like that. There were a lot of funny signs actually at the Women's I March. I have it on, I have it on, I mean, I have a friend who knows a lot of people because of the, of the line of, of work that he's in. And he told me uh, that he has very well-sourced information that had Trump lost the general election to Hillary, he and Melania would have announced their divorce the day after the election. Wow. But he won. And so then what? So then she's got to stay with him because if she divorces him right after, that affects his approval. Does it really? Yeah. I mean, if she were to leave him the day after he wins, everyone would be like, well, there's clearly, you know, something's wrong here. That wouldn't be good for a president. America likes its presidents to be like, you know, like a paragon of, monogamous joy. Do you know right. what I'm saying? Like good family <laughs> men or whatever. But, um, uh, so if this is true, let's assume this is true. That would mean that there's some sort of deal or they pressured her to stay or she had agreed to stay. But what if they said, you know, we'll take Baron away. We'll get you kicked out of the country unless you pretend to be a happy wife. 
I mean, she lives in New York. <laughs> she doesn't look that happy, I have to no. say. <laughs> but maybe that's a muddly, muddly. I want this to be. I want this to be like a. I want this to be like Katie Holmes and Tom Cruise on steroids, and eventually she's going to escape. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. And she's going to like give a. She's going to give an interview to Barbara Walters around sixty minutes. That's going to be incredibly revelatory, and she's just going to come clean about everything. Can I just put it out there that I would like to ghostwrite her book? Yeah. I would put aside a couple of years of my life. Melania or Katie in, Holmes? Interview Melania. Oh. Well, I think that, you know, Katie signed a bunch of stuff, so she can, I don't think she can ever say anything. Well, I want to see probably. the, I want to see the movie version of her, uh, extracting herself from that marriage. It's pretty I find that true. I think that's a really good story. That's actually. a great idea. And it involved like burner phones and all kinds of, you know, like yeah. I think that there was, like, no, it was a like cloak. Of... It was cloak and dagger. Yeah, yeah, her yeah. father's a divorce attorney. He was advising. I mean, like that's, that's what you would actually need. She had very good advice. Yeah. But even don't you feel, I always feel like she was sitting in her parents' home, like terrified that it was bugged, yeah. you know, because Scientology, I think was onto her. That's what I want to know the truth about. Yeah. I want to know what the, I want to know what happened. Yeah. I think America, I think everyone wants to know. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> Um, so, okay. So you came here seven years ago on a lark. I mean, this is the thing about oh. Australians cause I've lived in Australia, uh, for a semester abroad when I was in college. So I have some familiarity, but one thing I've always admired about Australians is how well traveled they are. Yeah. So it's totally common for, um, especially young Australians to go travel for a year. Like yeah. it's, it's like almost like a cultural value in a way that it isn't here and, and should be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because it's so far from Australia, so far from most places that we tend to go for a long time, which by the way is a good thing. It's sort of <laughs> nice to be tucked away down there. I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, I get that you can kind of get like Island fever or whatever, or I don't know, but like right about now, like Melbourne sounds great to me. Right. <laughs> Open invitation. <laughs> Take the podcast on the road. Yeah. I know some writers. Yeah. So you, uh, you just wanted to get out and experience some stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I traveled sort of, I took a gap year between high school and university. Then I, you know, then I did university, worked for a while, traveled again. But the reason I came to the States was I got a fellowship. I got the Stegner Fellowship, Wallace Stegner Fellowship at Stanford. Oh, God. Um, That's a good reason. Yeah. Yeah. So then i that's why I initially moved here. Where'd you go um, to university? University of Melbourne. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. What's the best school in Australia? Um, I think, I don't know. I think they're all pretty Is good. Is there a Harvard of Australia? No. And almost all of the schools are public, although they've kind of got a setup now where they sort of, like they, they, they are charging more fees and then they get a lot of international students from Asia and charge them fees. So it's not quite as cheap. I went to, Br I went to Brisbane. I went to Brisbane uni. Was that good? Uh, I, <laughs> I probably not. <laughs> I was barely there. I literally, this is the truth. This is the God's honest truth. I did a semester abroad. I took like four or five classes. I was inside of a classroom for all four or five classes combined 15 or fewer times. And you just played hooky the rest of the time. I, was, and I don't know what I did. Yeah. I just fucked around. That's the truth. I'm not proud of it. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think that's fine. I think that's probably what people should do on their junior year. I mean, I, I, the, the great thing about it, as I recall, is that my teachers and pretty much everyone involved sort of knew that was the deal. They were, they were like, we know this isn't serious for you. And not just for me, but for all of us, you know. And this is why Brisbane University is not the Harvard <laughs> of Australia. <laughs> God bless it. I had a good time there. Um, so, okay. So you came over here, you got your Stegner fellowship. So you moved to Palo Alto. Actually, I lived in San Francisco. Oh, you did? Um, yes. You so can do that? You, you can, can do that because you just have one workshop a week. Huh. It's kind of a professional thing where they just pay you. It's like the golden ticket of the literary world or something. They just pay you for two years to live in the Bay area and write once a week, you go down and workshop your work with 
amazing fellows and amazing writer professors. God, um, that's a good deal. So it was a good deal. Who, yeah. who, were, who were you workshopping with? You mean who were the teachers? Um, Tobias Wolf, who was awesome. Um, Elizabeth Talent, John LaRue, and Colm Toybin, the Irish writer. Yeah. This is a good lineup. That's a good lineup. And it just, um, I had done, undergrad, I had done something called a Bachelor of Creative Arts. So I'd done writing and film and theater and um, so I, you know, I was already writing, but I got there and I was just like, everyone was so smart and so talented. And actually I didn't have, I don't have a master's, but everyone, most people had a an MFA. So they'd kind of gone through a lot of workshops already. And, um, yeah, so I kind of had to learn how to do that. And I, and also I just realized like with readers like that, I just couldn't get away with anything, you know, like you be good. usually you can hide the bad stuff, you know? Right. And, um, I just couldn't, they just called me on everything, which was great. It's so helpful. And well, like, I your... still hear their voices in my head when I, when I write now, they're my first readers still like, it was a life changing they still haunt situation. you. What'd you say? They haunt you. <laughs> sometimes they haunt me and sometimes they're bad. Yeah. Sometimes they're kind of bad voices, like someone who like maybe didn't get what I was trying to do and, you know, kind of like, yeah, jumps in there. <laughs> so who, anybody, uh, you were classmates with who's published? Yeah. Well actually, uh, Jim Gavin, who's a LA writer and that was a really fun podcast episode because he just talked the whole time about working in a gas station in yeah. his twenties. <laughs> it was great. Um, yeah. So Jim Gavin, Skip Horak, um, Suzanne Rebecca. I'm trying to just think who's, who else has books. How many people are so in it at a time? It's like a small handful. Yeah. So it's five a year and it's two years. So it's 10 fellows a year. Damn. Yeah. That's awesome. So were you surprised to get it? How did you even know oh about it? Oh my God. I was so surprised. I think I thought it, I kind of, okay. So I, when I was like 15, <laughs> let's go back. When I was 15, I randomly found like in a classroom in my school, a copy of the best American short stories of some year in the nineties or, and, um, and then I, oh yeah. So then I just fell in love with American short fiction and then just, you know, fell in love with all these writers. And I'd started to look at the contributors notes and everyone had an MFA. I didn't know what that was. So yeah, I kind of got to a place where I really wanted to, you know, focus on writing and I decided I wanted to, to study in the States and, um, yeah, so just researched, basically I researched whatever the programs that funded and the programs that didn't require a GRE cause I'm lazy and didn't want to do that. Yeah, who wants to do that? And then, um, so I think I thought that the Stegner fellowship was an MFA. I kind of was like, I was really on the other side of the world, just like flinging short stories, like, you know, North and, um, Never expected to get it. And what do they send you? They call you or they, they send you something? They call. They call. And um, they called at four in the morning <laughs> and left a message. And I'd been traveling. So I think I left, I think I'd kind of left my mobile phone number, but also my mom's landline just in case. And so they called my mom's place and then left a message, I think, on her machine. And then she kind of woke up and, and listened to it and called me and said that I'd gotten it. And, um, yeah, I totally didn't believe it. I thought it was going to be someone called like Annabelle Ullman or something and it had been a mix up. And then I remember my mom saying like, it's just nice to be nominated. You know, you don't have to go. And I was like, mom, I'm fucking going. <laughs> You're smart to have done. That's a, one of the best, if not the best writing fellowships in the country. Yeah. It's yeah. most coveted. It's amazing. Yeah. It really felt like the Willy Wonka golden ticket. And then I was like walking around Melbourne in those last six months before I moved to the States. I don't know if you've ever had this, but I was like, I can't get hit by a car. 
take care of yourself. Yeah. Like, oh, you've yeah. got to go there and write yeah. your book. You yeah. know? Like, right. right. I, I told, I've had that feeling before. Like, I'm going to die. It's, I'm going to die before this happens. Yeah, before, good, before something good. Like, I'm used to the anxiety of just, like, I'm going to die because I'm on a plane and I'm an anxious Jew. <laughs> I'm an anxious Jew. But, like, yeah, this was kind of like a good anxiety of just, like, stay intact so you can go do this awesome thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. All right. So that brings you over here. What yes. did you submit to get in? Was it anything from Hot Little Hands? Or? Yeah, it's actually the first two stories from Hot Little Hands. Okay. Yeah. And you were just writing short fiction? Yes. That's your thing? That's my... Oh, that's been my thing. Yeah, that was my thing. Are you working there. on a novel and now? Then, yeah, I'm working on the beginning of a novel. Yeah. And then a, a theater director in Australia wants to... Like, she contacted me because she wants to move into film. So we're adapting a couple of the stories from the book into a movie, which is like, of course, I'm doing that rather than write a novel because it's collaborative and, yeah. you know... Yeah. <laughs> I like collaborative. It's hard to go back into the solitary writing space after, um, yeah, after finishing a book. And also because, and then editing, everything is so solitary and so much work. I don't know if it's annoying when writers talk about how hard it is, but anyway. No, that's what this show is so, for. Okay, cool. We're just, just annoying people. <laughs> just whinge. And so, um, yeah, so it's just like when an opportunity comes to work with somebody else and share the stories, you know, she was really nervous at first, you know, to suggest changes to the plot. And I was like, no, they're our stories now. I was so happy, you know. Yeah, it's, it's an adaptation. Yeah, exactly. The movie's different. And, you know, it's hard to, when you talk about finishing a project, all that goes into a book project, I marvel at people who can just like effortlessly jump from one book to the next. Uh, I want to yeah. do that. I'm trying to do that currently. And I just feel like, I, I mean, with this last book, I pretty much said everything I wanted to say for a while. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do I, what else do the people really need me to keep doing this? Like, I, I don't know that, that, that sounds sort of, uh, I don't want to sound, uh, ridiculously self-deprecating, but that's, that's truly kind of how I feel. Like I need to replenish or something. Oh, I absolutely understand that. That's one of the reasons for this trip. And like the last bunch of trips I've taken is just to kind of be stimulated and like refill. But I think that, you know, that's sort of coming from the industry, like, okay, you, you know, what, what's next? You get, you publish a book, you get your six months or however long it is to publicize it and then celebrate it. And then it's like, okay, back, back what's to the next? desk. And yeah, I think it is more like some writers do have something else they want to say, or they just love the writing practice or they, you know, they're disciplined and want to work that way. But others just, yeah, don't have anything new to say for a while. And do you work, uh, from the inside out? Like is your work, I mean, I know all work is personal in some way, but are you working in a, in a really autobiographical vein? Cause like, that's what, that's what I'm doing. And mm -hmm. so I'm not just like making up stories and I don't mean to sound like I'm denigrating that. Like, I wish I could do that better, <laughs> but it's like, that's, that's why I need to replenish. I need some more shit to happen to me and then I can write about it. Oh, have you always been that kind of writer? I guess so. Huh. And is it sort of like loosely veiled or is it like you t like taken to an extreme or is it like pretty much just hanging out with you and reading your book? I mean, it's kind of all of the above. I mean, it's fiction. I can bend it however I want, but it, you know, it really... It's thinly veiled autobiographical fiction, I guess. What about you? That's great. Um, I mean, because your, your stories are, I mean, they're about all sorts of different characters. Yeah, yeah. So they're all about, they're like, half of them are about teenage girls and the other half are about women in their 20s. And um, Which you have been, all of the above. You've I been have, a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I guess in that way they're autobiographical. But um, no, they're not really. I always say, and maybe it's wanky, but I say that they're emotionally autobiographical because, you know, like I remember coming home from school and lying on my bed and just like thinking like, I've got such a crush on this person or whatever, you know, like I remember those feelings, but the stories that happened to the characters did not happen to me, except 
one of them, which is about a, the last story in the collection is about, there's a recurring character. She's in three stories and her third story is about her getting deported from the U S and that did happen to me. So that's the one you got deported. I got deported. No yeah. shit. But yeah. when, sorry, by whom? Um, well, it was under the Obama administration, but, um, for I'd, what, what did you do? You're a Stegner fellow. You can't get deported. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you to vouch for me? I don't know. Um, sitting here. <laughs> I was, um, yeah, I was coming into the, so after the Stegner fellowship, I moved to New York for a year and did a year of an MFA at NYU, but ultimately decided I didn't, I just didn't want to do that. Um, I didn't want more workshop time. And then I sold my collection unfinished. So it was six stories long. And then I kind of spent like a couple of years, like, um, sort of going to artist residencies in this country and kind of bouncing around. And some of it was set in San Francisco. So I would go hang out there and try to write it. Um, so I was kind of doing a lot of that. And then I was visiting a friend in Italy and then came back into the country. Um, I was going to San Francisco, but I flew into Philadelphia, which I've since heard is actually pretty tough. Like they're pretty tough in that airport, even to local people. It's a tough city, Philly. Yeah, it's I don't call it that. Philly because I think Philly makes it sound cute. It's <laughs> Philadelphia. It has a lot of syllables and it's a fucking tough <laughs> place. Um, so yeah, it was actually a funny story. This detail isn't in the book because I just had to like, I couldn't put it all in, but it was weird because I was waiting in the line in the customs. I had to go through customs in Phil- Philadelphia. And then um, there was like one of the machines was on the blink, one of the uh, fingerprinting machines. And so, um, so yeah, so it was just taking a long time and I get there and the guy's like, okay, all my paperwork was fine. And then he was like, just so you know, this machine's on the blink. So you might have to go to the back room if it doesn't work. And then it didn't work. So I got sent into the back room. So that was kind of just a random thing. And then in the back room, they started looking at my paperwork and they were like, you've spent a lot of time here. Why? And I'm kind of, you know, I was trying to go into everything. And then they charged me with a quote unquote intent to immigrate, which means I hadn't broken any laws. I hadn't, I'd stayed, you know, within the rules of my visa, but they just sort of like thought that I had the will to like stay here forever. And I could not argue them down. And it's really hard. I kind of think of it as like minority report. It's like, they were kind of charging me for a crime that they thought I was going to commit. Like one day I might overstay or marry. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah. So I couldn't argue them down. And then it was like, a really long ordeal they like interviewed me and then i they made me sign the interview but there were questions on there that they had answered for me like it said like do you want to contact your consulate do you want to make a phone call and it said no no and so i said i can't sign this you're not allowed a lawyer because you're not officially you're kind of in like where like where edward snowden was in russia that's where i was here you're kind of in the transit zone it's called so you don't really have any rights and um so they were like, yeah, you know, um, yeah. So I said, I can't sign this and I wasn't allowed to talk to a lawyer or anything. And then they were like, okay, let's do the interview again. And they were really sarcastic with me. They, yeah. And then you would think that something like having the Stegner fellowship would be like, okay, I'm like a legitimate person. That's not like going around. Maybe, I don't know. I'm sure plenty of Stegner fellows. You're have, a like, subversive left wing writer. <laughs> <laughs> but then they came in with a bunch of stuff from online that they'd printed out and like including stuff about that fellowship and other things, you know, short stories and whatever. And it didn't make a difference. And actually I think maybe they thought I was someone who could afford to go to Stanford and was kind of privileged. And then they were just like, nah, like you, you are not staying there even harder on me after that. So but the crazy thing is that you can't stay in that airport overnight. It's not a 24 hour airport. So I was, pretty intensively searched, not like rubber gloves, but like pretty intensively searched in like a cell out the back. And then I was ankle cuffed. What does that mean? Did you have to strip? No, I didn't have to strip. It was just like two women 
yeah, just like, you know, pretty, like just over my clothes, but really, really, really intensely because I was being taken to jail. So they need to make sure that like, I don't have, you know, anything, any shiv or whatever people might have or like, <laughs> a boomerang. you know, like, yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> <laughs> um, your hair, you know, so like they took the drawstring out of my hoodie. They took my shoelaces they you know like yeah they ankle cuffed me and handcuffed me and shuffled me through the airport surrounded in offices and just surrounded by offices which like for your listeners like i'm a pretty short white what the, what the fuck is little this? jewish girl like it this, must have looked really funny this makes no um, sense to me i didn't i mean i know that this stuff happens but it's like well, i can't even believe that yeah yeah and then i got taken to a jail in philadelphia and then then i had then i was in jail and i had to go through all of those processes so it was like Getting pro- I had to get processed. I had to have a medical examination, which included a pregnancy test. They made me wait. Like, I think part of the thing that fucks with you when you're, with, I guess, with any of these situations is like just uncertainty. So I would keep asking, what's going to happen next? Where, where are you taking me? When, like, you know, and they just would be like, you know, we'll let you know when you need to know kind of thing. Like they were really sarcastic and really cold. And um, so, yeah, just like locked in a cell, not knowing like how long I was going to be there, what was going to happen, like, there weren't any, it was just like a cell with like a silver toilet bowl. You know what I mean? It was like, it was a fucking nightmare. And to come from like an international flight and then find yourself in a jail in Philadelphia, it's like, <laughs> yeah. Like I was just in Italy. It was lovely. <laughs> yeah. And my, I, in Italy, I was, I was visiting a friend who was at the um, American Academy of Rome. Uh-huh. So like the day before I had been having dinner with Joyce Carol Oates randomly, who was like in Rome and they had invited her. And it was like this massive fancy courtyard and it was like this beautiful like european meal and then it's like i'm in jail in philadelphia Just like staring not at, a, at a silver toilet bowl <laughs> yeah yeah so um <laughs> but how yeah. long did this take start to finish how many days were you in limbo i think it was probably 36 hours oh, yeah that's a long 36 hours yeah and then what they put you on a plane home so then that if if you're not allowed into the country the airline is obligated to take you back free of charge so then i got fucking escorted to the airplane uh with handcuffs and everything like that and then um yeah and then put on the plane and then sent back to to italy and that was also a weird experience because i was like so you know i was just like exhausted i couldn't believe what i'd gone through and then all these like fresh-faced people like are excited for their trip to italy and like you know um and i was just sitting there like oh my god i just want a phone charger like i just need to tell someone what just happened to me um so then they yeah then they sent me to back to italy and then i had to use pretty much all my savings to then like fly back to australia you know like i really you know I, i stayed with my friend in italy for a couple of days and then went like back to australia through hong kong and um yeah, and then ended up applying for the same visa that I had had and got a bunch of letters from, like, employers and people in Australia saying, like, she lives in Australia. She's, like, planning to come back to Australia after this trip, you know? And, um, yeah, even just letters from family friends saying, like, she has a close relationship with her family. She's not trying to, like, leave the country forever and, yeah, illegally live in the States. So eventually I got given the same visa and came back. Yeah. I mean, I didn't come back and like, you're never going to, you're never going to Philadelphia again. I'm never going to Philadelphia again. Ever, ever, ever. (laughs) That's in the story I wrote about it. It's like, I'm not even going to eat the cream cheese. I'm not going to watch the Tom Hanks movie. (laughs) Like I'm done with that place. I think it's okay. Do you have any places where you're like, I don't want to go back there. It was a dark time. So many, I kind of feel that way about Florida. I'm going to hear from listeners in Florida, but I I don't know if I ever need to go back. (laughs) The whole state, huh? The whole state. It weirds me out. I got a bad sunburn there. I got my head when I was a kid, my sister and I were in a fight. I was like 12 years old and, uh, it was raining. We were there on a vacation. It was the first time I ever saw the ocean. I was 12 years old. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Is it, are you from the middle of the country? Yeah. 
and uh, we get there, we want to see the ocean. And of course, it's like pouring rain for 72 hours. <laughs> so we're all pissed off. We're going to go rent a VCR. Remember those? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't know. You're like, you're younger, so I don't know. And uh, we were, we pulled up in the minivan. Everyone's fighting, pissed off, like nerves are, you know, things are tense. And my sister, my mom's like, I'm going to go get the VCR. My older sister says, I'm going with you. And then at the very last second, I said, I'm going to. And so my sister climbs out of the van. She's like on the, the sliding door side. And then I follow her and she doesn't hear me because the rain is coming down so oh, hard. God. And she's so pissed off that she like whips the door shut without looking. Just as I was like crouched, like trying to climb out. And so the door just like clipped me in the head and like knocked me out cold. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Which of course I blame on Florida and not my sister. Uh -huh. <laughs> so then you just, when you came to, you were kind of just like on the ground next to the van. Yeah. My mom's like, you're going to have cauliflower ear. That's all I remember. <laughs> cauliflower ear. My mother always like leaping to conclusions. I'm going to be like permanently maimed. Um, yeah. It was like Florida memories. And then the next day the sun came out. We were so excited because we've been cooped up. Mm -hmm. And so we ran outside. No one put on sunscreen. So like just like blisters, like just like the worst sunburn of my life. Oh my God. And uh, everyone was in pain for like the next oh four days. <laughs> was that the whole vacation? Yeah, that's hell. My family never vacated. Like, we never had a lot of luck vacationing, though I should say the last one we took as adults just this past year was great. But as kids, like we were, like, were notorious for bad weather. We went on a cruise, like everyone was barfing, you know what I'm saying? Like just that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's never, it never went well. <laughs> and my poor mom, like we went to Hawaii. There was like a monsoon <laughs> and, uh, we literally got rained on for seven or eight straight days. Oh my God. Like, like and then the entire time. So she's cooped up with the kids, like having to entertain you in this yeah. foreign place. Well, we were adults well, at that foreign, point. The Hawaii, one, right. we were like, you know, I was in my twenties. You know, my mom had dreamed of this for her, like literally had dreamed of this her whole life. So she's sort of, you know, poor, yeah. she wanted this to be special. <laughs> Like I rode, I'm going to, I'm just telling you vacation stories. I, I rode down, um, you know, like the volcano, how you can take a bike ride. Yeah. I rode down that in the driving rain with my brother-in-law, just freezing. Like, just cause we were so sick of sitting in the condo. Mm -hmm. I mean, was yeah. it fun? No. It <laughs> Did it add danger to it? That you yes. were like, it was like, it was like, a, it was probably going to come out. You're at altitudes. So it was like a freezing rain. It was like sleeting. And, uh, you're, I have like a poncho, but like, I didn't bring warm clothes to Hawaii. So I'm shivering. <laughs> I don't know. It's funny in hindsight. Yeah. Well, I think that's like interesting because I do like, I do love to travel and I do it as much. Like I, it's what I spend my money on. I'm never going to be able to like buy a house or anything. It's just like, as soon as I save a bit, I spend it on a plane ticket. And I think that like on Instagram and stuff and just my friends who, you know, have full-time jobs and can't, cause I freelance so I can freelance from anywhere. My friends who have full-time jobs and can't do that. Um, I think it just looks really, you know, like glamorous or amazing and fun. And like, I have the best life and I do love it. And I am so lucky, but also like, there's a lot of chaos and darkness and like, yeah, like what you're saying, unexpected stuff that happens when you travel. I usually travel by myself. So then it's like, I have to kind of access some kind of like inner resources to deal with it or external resources, you know? Um, but it so gives, yeah, you, it gives you stuff to write about. Yeah. Well, and absolutely. It, it's like, I find travel, like I can't do it. I have a family now. It's hard with young kids. Um, Hopefully later. And that's also expensive. Yeah. Cause I got to take them, got to take them with me. And then how is that on a plane? That's hell. I mean, with small children. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, like, especially when they're in diapers, 
Yeah. Your kid like shits its pants on the, <laughs> and you're like wedged into the <laughs> lavatory. It's, and it's hard because you, I mean, I don't have kids, but like, I know how I feel when there's like a really difficult kid and like on the plane next to me and I, or, you know, a crying baby or whatever. And I try to, you know, be so empathetic, but every, I imagine if I ever had a kid, I would be like, well, I know how much I'm pissing everyone off because I was one of those pissed off people, you yeah, know, yeah. but you gotta, I mean, you can't not what, you, you what are you going to do? Yeah. You got to just go. And I, you know, you, I think too, like parents, you gotta, you gotta just go. You can't stay cooped up just because it's difficult. You know, you got to go take your kids places, but let, let, let's, let's let them get out of diapers. Yeah. Fair enough. Once they're potty trained, I'll think about taking right. them. It's <laughs> probably a good rule. Yeah. And then, and then you travel differently cause you have kids and you're looking like my sister has three kids and the way she travels now and you know, like the things you look to do and stuff, it's totally different, but it seems kind of fun. Like, more outdoor things or you want to go look at the animals or whatever. You're not like, where is the cool neighborhood with the bars? You know, <laughs> that's better. <laughs> Just so you know, stick to that. My, uh, yeah, my wife and I, we were in, uh, this is before my son was born, but my, we took our daughter to new Orleans hmm. and we were in the French quarter with like a three-year-old and it was radically different than every French quarter. Have you been in new Orleans? Yeah. Okay. So we, but like suddenly we were there and we we're like, Oh, like, you know, don't step in the puddle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she just wanted to like ride in, you know, the horse and carrot, the horse and buggy or whatever. But it, uh, it does. It's, it's definitely a game changer. It shifts everything. But was it like, were there things, were there seedy things around that you were kind of like, yeah. she didn't notice. It's like, she's like, she's in life is beautiful. She's or like a grown she's man wet like... his pants. <laughs> she's like, but the architecture is pretty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People, people like at like 11 in the morning, just like walking the streets, like zombies. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's a lovely city. I mean, oh, you know, I, I love New yeah. Orleans. Yeah, me too. That's a good place for, I always recommend it to people from out of country when they travel to the States. It's like, where should I go? I say, Go to New York, go to San Francisco, go to New Orleans, Philadelphia, <laughs> <laughs> go to the heart of, go to, go to the transit zone at the Philadelphia airport. <laughs> I hear the toilets are made of stainless steel. Yeah. One day when I'm like super famous, people are going to take tours of these places and it's going to be like just tourists <laughs> shuffling through the transit this zone. This is where she, this is where a Stegner fellow was unjustly <laughs> incarcerated. Um, but you know, there's something about travel. This is the point that I was trying to make before I digressed is that, uh, I really, I've always loved it so much because I feel like it's a really hyper compressed education. It's such valuable time. You get, I get so much out of it as for all of its difficulties. And it's all like, uh, this is a weird comparison, but when I was growing up, I remember watching Saturday night live. I still do this, you know, so you watch Saturday yeah. night live it's not really that funny, mm -hmm. but yet you're watching it every fucking week. But then on Monday at school or when you talk to your friends and you are explaining the skits that you sort of like to each other, it gets really funny. It's like mm -hmm. sort of better after the fact and travel for all of its difficulty when it's happening. I cannot look back on any trip I've ever taken with anything other than rose colored glasses. Mm. Except Florida, maybe. Except yeah. Florida. <laughs> Except when I got my head shut. Up. But even that, even that. It's a good story. It's lore. You know, and like, yeah, I, I don't know, especially is. international yeah. travel. Like, I love to be outside of my comfort zone. I love to feel disoriented. Some people don't like that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So do I. And you're right. I mean, you have like, 
a year's worth of stimulation at home, you know, in like a, a very compressed amount of time. Is that, yeah. is that part of the allure for you? Absolutely. It's so stimulating. Yeah. It's so stimulating. Like I, I feel like I'm on drugs or something. You get out of the uh, air, you know, you get out of the airplane, you're in some country you've never been to before. You probably don't speak the language. Everything looks new. Everything sounds new. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's just like a heightened level of awareness. Yeah. And I love the challenge of it. Like I love think, like working out like the currency or how am I going to get to this place and how does, how do things work? And like, again, you're just using your brain in a way that like you're kind of on autopilot when you're at home because you know how to do all of those things. So, right. Yeah. Right. So where are you going to go next? Do you have plan? You're going to go back home, I guess, right? I'm going back home. And then I think Mexico city is like the place that I'm kind of going to try and save for and go next. I've just heard great things about it. Have you been? I have not been. I've been to Mexico, but not to Mexico city. Yeah. Yeah. Same actually. So, um, yeah, I've heard it's good. So an extended stay or just like a, a visit? Um, I mean, it's not, I don't have, don't have it planned yet, but I would probably stay for about a month. I like to try and stay places and like live with other people in kind of a share house situation. Like I would, you know, in my own country. What, like Airbnb? Yeah, well, I, I guess I Airbnb'd a place here last in LA last time I was here, and then that woman's girlfriend lives in Mexico City. So she said, if you ever want to go, like, there's that that cool happenstance stuff that happens too. So I guess I would probably stay there, and then yeah, just kind of like hang out right from there, walk around, try not to get mugged or whatever. Try, try not to get uh, <laughs> what's uh, deported. Yeah, try not to get deported. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> watch them build the wall from the other side. Is this is this like your plan? This is your plan. You're going to make money, travel, make money, travel, right while you go. The whole, I mean, is this the long term plan or is this just for the next few years? I mean, it has been the past few years and, oh, the past bunch of years. And um, I still plan to do it, but I do feel like, you know, I always think everyone has a, a single quest at any given time. And for the longest time after I sold that book and couldn't finish it, my quest was like, finish that collection. And then I did that and I, and I forgot at the time I was like, once that's done, my life is going to be sorted, which is maybe what you always think when, um, false when, summit, you know, yeah. false summit, <laughs> yeah, false summit, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So then, and now I feel like my quest or whatever is just to like work out where I'm going to live and kind of put down roots because I have communities, but they're really scattered. And I, I mean, you know, community is like an idealized thing and it's always kind of complicated and stuff, but I really do want to like live somewhere and, um, have yeah, roots. Have, a, have, yeah, have roots, put down roots. Yeah. Wherever it is, whether it's home or like, you know, in Australia or yeah, or elsewhere, I feel like that's really important. And I'm, and I'm experiencing the, like, yeah, the lack of that a little bit and a little bit like, you know, here I've met awesome people, but they're kind of like, well, you're sort of one foot in and one foot out, you know, like, I don't know how much to invest in you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is also kind of like maybe very LA and New York where it's kind of just like it's a bit uh, transactional. It's uh, like, yeah, I don't know what the payoff is going to be. If I, <laughs> I just want, I just, I have fantasies of just living in a place that's beautiful and affordable with lots of smart, cool people. And we all know each other. And like, there's a real sense of community. Yeah. I don't have that. I don't think most people I know, regardless of where they live, have that. That's the thing. And then whenever I talk about this, people are like, well, maybe you'll just like get a partner and then you'll both be creative people and you'll be stimulated that way. But it ends up feeling kind of sad and conservative to me. Of course I want that, but also like, yeah, like what you're saying, it'll be great to like know other people. And, you know, I think, I feel like a lot of people get this. If people who do MFAs in small places, I think get this, you know, they get two years of just like potlucks and dropping around for drinks it's and you know, that sort of thing. And like maybe Provincetown and places like that. Um, I was telling my wife last night cause I watched, uh, do you ever watch that show chef's table on Netflix? No. It's like, it's like the ultimate food porn. It's like beautifully shot. Like the cinematography is peerless 
and it's all about, uh, incredible chefs hmm. and it shows them preparing. And I, I'm not even into that, but like, I like watching this cause I like documentary film and anyway, it's on Netflix. Okay. Chef's table. Yes. And, uh, this new season, I think the first episode is all about this monk and she is uh, Korean. So she lives in South Korea in the most beautiful monastery, like tucked up in these lush green hills. And there's like a rolling river that, you know what I'm saying? Like it could not be more idyllic. And they, you know, she meditates and I think it's called a pagoda. Is that what it's called? That sounds right. Yeah. And it's the most beautifully ornate painted carved, like it's gorgeous. There's bridges, <laughs> there's a garden. So I go upstairs to my wife and I'm sort of Buddhist, like, you know, sort of, and I idealize it. And I'm like, I think I should have been a monk. Which, by the way, might not be what you should tell your wife. <laughs> With like two kids sleeping in the yeah, next I'm room like, or whatever. I think I miss my. I think I miss my calling. Honey. Like a Buddhist monk, you mean? <laughs> Just oh yeah. I mean, especially a Buddhist monk, because I'm thinking to myself, and I was texting my friend this. I was like, "You live on a resort. You have a community of people. Nobody talks. Everybody's <laughs> celibate. There's no complications." <laughs> Everyone's just sexually frustrated and vegan, <laughs> but I, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it almost feels like this, it's like that whole fantasy that a lot of writers have. And I think a lot of people these days have who live in, uh, you know, our hyper distracted world or whatever. It's like, God, prison sounds great. <laughs> just sleep and read. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like enforced. Yeah. I see that, that, that like pops up on Twitter every once in a while. And it's like, <laughs> not that I'm a badass, but I'm like, I had whatever, however many hours in a cell yeah. and I'm like, you're, nah. like, you're like, you've never been in the transit zone, buddy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go to Philadelphia <laughs> transit zone and then talk to me about your prison fantasy. But I, but I, you know, I totally know what you mean. And especially, I mean, for me, it's especially with reading. Like, I think I can still get writing done, but I don't read nearly as much And that. You know, like uh -huh. I love the idea of just being somewhere and getting to, do you think that, do you think that listening to audio books counts as reading a book? Yeah, if you can do, I, I do. If you can do it and concentrate as well, because I listen to nonfiction as uh, nonfiction audiobooks, but I can't concentrate on fiction, so I just don't do that. But I think if you can take it in, it does. Okay, that, you, that's good. What do you think? I, well, uh, that's what I'm banking on because okay. that's how I've been doing it lately. Because I can go to the grocery store, or I can run an air, you know, I can be in my car and I can listen to a book. And do you do you listen to like literary fiction or not as like much? Right. I listen to a lot of biographies. Right. So I think it's good for nonfiction. The thing about literary fiction is that it's so often about the language that I feel like I'd just be rewind, rewinding it to sort of re-experience it or you know listen again. Um, but yeah, I think it's really good for nonfiction. All right. Well, do you come from artsy people? Yeah. Oh, my mom. Yeah, I, my mom is creative, and my dad is not at all. So I guess half half but i have three older sisters and we're all we're all four girls four girls mm -hmm. yeah and um yeah and we're all kind of artistic in some way so i think uh yeah my dad lost that one he did. Oh, god <laughs> um, is he scientific yeah exactly yes yeah he and he like still has to help me with my taxes and yeah <laughs> well at least there's got to be one in a family <laughs> yeah. that can handle that stuff yeah exactly <laughs> um but i am really lucky in that yeah, they never kind of questioned, you know, what what I wanted to do. Although I, when I got that fellowship at Stanford, I said, are you kind of relaxed now that, you know, I'll be okay? And they were like, no, we, you'll get paid for two years. So we feel fine about the next two years. But beyond that, we don't really know. So, and they um, know better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, you know, you get, a, you get like this golden ticket, like you say. It's just no matter how much, quote unquote, success... Or actually, uh, strike the scare quotes. Like, no matter how much success a writer has, when you really peel back the layers, there are so few 
writers who really make a living writing. <laughs> yes. It's incredibly hard to do. And, and the other thing too, Ugh, yeah. what was I doing? Oh, you know what I was doing? I was because the, um, the podcast is now free. I was going and updating the site and I was like going through all these back episodes and reading through the posts that go up for each episode and the, the incredible critical raves that almost every author on the show gets where it's like, this is a masterful, you know, right, like, yeah. and you're like, I bet you maybe 2000 people found this book or I mean, maybe I don't, I don't you know, yeah. it's just like, it, it, there's so much good writing out there that deserves more of an audience. Oh yeah. It's so true. But also I wonder about some people cause you know, in Australia, people teach in Australia, like, okay. So this is one of the differences that in the States, if you're, a successful writer, you'll probably oftentimes still teach. And then in Australia, if you're, you're a successful writer, you won't. And it's only the sort of like, you know, people who are just, who can't, can't you know, who are publishing, but not making enough money off it that will, that will teach. So I wonder about like, let's take George Saunders, who maybe, I don't know, is he still teaching? I think he is. He and is. it's like, do you think someone like that needs to at probably, this point? It's probably getting close to where he doesn't. And I bet you they, I'd love to see his course load. I mean, if he's teaching one, one, course a semester and or every other semester you know a right. lot of times when when a writer um you know achieves a certain stature i think a lot of times schools will give them very friendly terms right that makes sense just to keep them on the payroll and yeah. be like he teaches here right you know yeah, that makes sense and it makes it attractive <laughs> if you're here every students. leap year you can actually take a class right, with <laughs> <laughs> right. but i you know i also think some writers genuinely enjoy teaching it wouldn't surprise oh, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if he actually really likes that and then um, you know, like T.C. Boyle, he's taught forever at USC, but again, he, I don't think he teaches very much, but it's, it's steady income. It's health insurance. Yeah. These are the things we got to worry about in the United yeah, States. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and yeah. if you don't have that base, then you're, it's, you know, then it's all on you. So it's like, why not keep the teaching job? Let the university pay for my family's health care. Right. You know, in Australia, you guys just have health care, right? Yeah. We have health care. Yeah. And I don't like, you know, I'm, we're so lucky, I guess. I don't have any student debt. My whole education costs $6,000. See? Yeah. Donald Trump, if, <laughs> if you're listening. If anyone's wondering how I travel so much. <laughs> Sean Spicer, if you're listening to this on the treadmill. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. And I think it's like with the teaching thing, I think it's like what we were saying about this expectation that you finish one book, six months later, you start the next. I think it's the same with teaching in this country where so, like pretty much, you know, everyone in the Stegner fellowship, everyone at like, you know, in most MFAs, they get, or they're getting that credential because they probably also want to teach, but not everyone is a good teacher. And some people are amazing at it and love it. And it's what they're supposed to do. But it's interesting that that is kind of like what writers do now. I feel like everyone, and you know, being in LA now, I feel like everyone, you know, fiction writers either, try and teach or try to like write for TV. Those seem to be the two things in this country that I see people doing. And then, and you know, it's always fun when you meet a writer who does something completely different as a, you know, as a day job. Yeah. It's, I think it's actually, it's probably healthier. I don't know. I was just reading an article in the New Yorker about Jack White and how he like lives in Nashville, does all these weird things. He's outside of the big hives of, uh, the, you know, media culture. He's not in LA. He's not in New York. And he was saying something, something to the effect of if I was there and I was surrounded by it all and I just felt like I was one of, you know, a million people at the same trough, it would stifle my creativity. That makes some sense. And like you say, it's, 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 it's not interesting. 
I don't know. Yeah. And well, yet I'm, I'm a person who's tried to write for TV and is sitting here in LA. So it's like, right. what, you know, well, yeah, but yeah. And I think, yeah. So I, I don't know if it's really going to happen in our generation, but I noticed in earlier generations that, um, yeah, that the second novel was always like a thinly veiled academic novel, like trying to take down uh, like the other professors that you hate or whatever, you know, yeah. like, um, I don't know. I haven't seen that much of it from like younger writers, but, um, yeah, but you know, I feel, and I guess that goes back to the travel, like so much of it. When I'm in Australia, I like everybody else, I'm on my laptop, I'm looking at Twitter, you know, I do freelance copywriting. And so I'm just like doing that in the same apartment or in an office. So yeah, I, sometimes I feel like the only way to get out of feeling like we're all living exactly the same life as each other, you know, in a certain, like in a certain demographic of people is to, um, yeah, is to go and like be in other places and see other things. Good for you. That's smart. I mean, you know, and I think too, it's important to be increasingly important to have some people in this world who are actual citizens of the world. Uh, especially, I don't know. I feel like the, if you look at the statistics, I mean, the numbers bear it out. There are very few Americans who even have a passport. Right. Yeah. And I know that there's a socioeconomic, uh, part of it. You have to be privileged enough to be able to travel, but yeah. the truth is you don't have to have insane. You can make it happen if you want to. If you really want to get out, um, I mean, you're proof of that, right? I mean, you, you work, you save up some money, you buy a plane ticket, you go, you, yeah. You but like it. we said, I mean, yeah, like health insurance, this, you know, there's yeah, lots yeah, of yeah. things that I have that I right. have set up, but yeah, I mean, also, you know, people here, like it's more of an inward looking country, which will probably become more so with this, but that's you un, know, this it's unhealthy. administration. It's unhealthy. It, and, and it doesn't, it doesn't square with reality. Like we live in an interconnected world. I think that's objectively true. Yeah. So it would make sense for us to, I mean, we would, I think it would be of great benefit if everyone had like a compulsory gap year or like a subsidized gap year where it's like, go travel. Right. Yeah. Like, even if it taste. was Canada or Mexico, it doesn't Somewhere. have to be far away. <laughs> just, <laughs> just see what else is just happening and how people the talk wall. about your country. Climb the wall, cross the border, yeah. go the other way, you know, like it, just do something. Uh, I feel like that is part of, I mean, it's part of a very big problem. Yeah. Well, I mean... Yeah. Last time I came to the States, that was the thing also is like, you know, the bubble, <laughs> like, so my Twitter feed and everybody's, you know, and the politics on there. Um, yeah, they were kind of all, you know, of a piece and then got in a plane and came through Honolulu and I was sitting next to a guy from Honolulu to San Francisco who, um, was just a really big gun guy. And he was kind of like making fun. I told him I was a writer. So he started talking about a journalist who had said that he shot a gun at a gun range and was traumatized by it. And then just by shooting at a, a gun range. And this guy was like, yeah, you know, he was, this guy was also in the army that I was sitting next to. And he was like laughing at this journalist and showing me these gun websites and stuff. But, um, but he was a sweet guy That's that like I the never ultimate, would have the done. ultimate introduction. Welcome to the United States. Yeah. <laughs> Want to see my favorite gun website? <laughs> exactly. But also, well, that, yeah, I mean, he was, he was so different from me. And I was like, oh, we're all just talking to each other in, on Twitter. Like, you know, we're not really, I mean, obviously people have conservative was he hitting family on you? members. No, he wasn't hitting on me. He wasn't. Okay. No. I'm just curious that if that was like. That would be an amazing yeah. line though. And be like, yeah, that's the one. That's the gun I have. I'm, I'm, that's the one I'm going to get next. <laughs> Check out this ammo. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was like, he was a sweet person who I got along with. And I was just like, it was my first thing, you know, getting off the plane, you know, getting off and on a new plane and thinking like, I never would have had this conversation. No one on my Twitter feed is like linking to this gun website. And this is really interesting. And we get along in all these other ways, you know, yeah. we didn't really get in. I didn't like argue with him about politics because 
um, you know, we're like sitting in a very confined space. Yeah. <laughs> so we just stuck to, you know, yeah, pleasantries. But um, yeah, but it was, it's, it's good to be exposed to that stuff. Right. Like on just an interpersonal level, you know, just like. Depends how long the flight is. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I was on an international <laughs> flight in 2012, like a long flight, and uh, sat next to the sweetest, like Jewish grandma. I was in the window seat back of the plane for like 15 hours <laughs> and we just started talking and it was so pleasant until it got to politics. And then it was like, she was like, Obama's the devil basically. And I was just like, Oh, and, but I didn't <laughs> oh, want to, and I didn't, but I didn't want to debate, you know what I'm right. saying? Like I'm stuck yeah. on this plane. Yeah. Like I don't want this to turn, I'm not going to change this lady's mind. Like I, right. So you, you wind up just sitting there nodding for an hour. Like, how can I just take my Ambien and get out of this? Yeah, you know, yeah, that's yeah. basically what I ended up doing. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's good to talk to the people next to you on the plane. I need to do more of that. I because you get stories out of it. Like you say, it's part of the travel experience is, uh, interacting with people you normally wouldn't interact yeah, with. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got to put yourself out there. Like, yeah. Take your headphones off. Quit drugging yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just my modus operandi. I just, I just take uh, sleeping aids, listen to music. Um, Wait, so do you, have you had any weird ambient experiences on a plane? Yes. No, I haven't. <laughs> I was excited. <laughs> yes. I urinated on the lady. I woke up and peed on her by accident. <laughs> that nice Jewish grandma, <laughs> conservative grandma. I thought she was the lavatory. <laughs> so hallucinating. Um, no, but you hear that. Cause I don't, I, you know, I don't mix it with alcohol. That's what happens when people oh, okay. like, there was like the guy from REM, I want to say Lara Flynn Boyle was sort of flashing everybody in first class <laughs> for real. Wow. You hear stories about this, but whenever I hear stories about people, you know, who have no track record of acting irrationally, you know, in public or whatever, it's usually, I always think to myself, oh, they took Ambien and then drank too much mm. because when you mix it, that's when people start to, oh, and here's a great story. I have a buddy who like, he's a Republican. He and his wife are Republican, dear friends of mine, but like probably the most conservative friends of mine, you know, and, um, just, you know, lovely people, but square, you know, not crazy though. I guess back in their college days, they were a little wild, but you know, just mm -hmm. they, they are straight arrows. And it was right after, I think they'd had their second baby. And, uh, my friend, uh, the wife was going back to work and I'm going to, I'm going to call her the wife just so I don't out her on this show, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not trying to be weird. So the wife, um, was going back to work and she had been nursing the baby and was not getting good sleep. And so it was like a Sunday night and she's like, I have a meeting at work tomorrow morning. And like, I have to sleep. I have to sleep. And it was like eight o'clock at night on a Sunday. They had some wine with dinner, mm -hmm. nothing crazy. So she's like, I'm going to take a, an Ambien and I'm going to just go to bed. And my buddy, the husband said, mm -hmm. uh, okay, I'm just going to watch TV like good night. So he watches like another couple of hours of TV, goes back to his bedroom. She's not there. Oh my God. And he's like, what the fuck? And he's like wondering where she went. <laughs> He walks into their son's room, like the nursery, and he finds her like sitting on the bed, like by the crib, like surrounded by stuffed animals, like having a conversation, oh my like, God. like full on talking to them, 
like serious, like at a serious level. And he like gets out his phone and starts filming her. And it's like, what is going on? Like that's how they finally put it together that she was having like a really strong reaction to alcohol and ambient. Wow. Yeah. And like the reason I even know this story is cause like we were hanging out at a later date and he played it for me. It was the funniest thing you've ever seen. What was she talking to them about? I, I, I can't like even to think remember. That she was like practicing for the meeting. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, yeah. she was doing a PowerPoint. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't even know, but it was just like, it was hysterical because it's so <laughs> unlike her, you know, but she just completely was out of body. Just a word, right. word to the wise when you you head to Mexico City. <laughs> that ever the kind of ambient <laughs> that they have down there. I'm sure it's great. Yeah, yeah. You can get anything in Mexico. <laughs> can you really? Is that what you have? Don't act innocent. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't really been She's, yet. But I guess Abigail is feigning surprise way. right now yeah. that she doesn't know the pharmaceutical situation. Yeah, I'm going to open a briefcase at the end of the interview and just like <laughs> offer you a ton of pharmaceutical drugs. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, you can, you can pretty much walk into a pharmacy in Mexico and just be like, I need, you know, anything. I'm mm. pretty sure it's a very permissive culture. Mm. Uh, I remember I went to a wedding in Mexico and everyone was like, I'm not a pill guy though. I'm not big into it except for like a sleep aid on a long mm-hmm. trip. Are you into pills? <laughs> <laughs> not really. Um, but yeah, after moving to the States, I kind of doubt for the same reason, sleep stuff. So I started dabbling with just like, like, or being prescribed like Xanax or Clonopin or like things to help me. Yeah. Things to help me sleep. Do you have trouble like, sleeping? I, uh, yeah. You're an yeah. anxious person. Yes. You do anything for it besides pills? Like you have to exercise? Yeah, or? exercise, um, yoga, yeah. like a little meditation, but it's mainly just like from a meditation app or, or one that my yoga teacher kind of teaches us. Um, yeah. And then I've done some CBT, like cognitive behavioral therapy, and that's really helpful because it's just about talking back to those like anxious thoughts, you know, like, and kind of just like trying to find a rational thought to, you know, kind of address an irrational thought. Should I do that? I found it really helpful. And the thing about it is like, they don't want to keep you forever. It's like 10 sessions and go kind of thing. So if you can afford it, I think it's great. If you need kind of really practical skills for anxiety, but I have to say none of this helps me sleep, but I've been like a night owl since I was a little kid. So I think I'm just wired that way. And then I'm like, yeah, sleep during the day. I don't, I just, well, I don't, I mean, I don't really, it's kind of like always a struggle. I mean, I so yeah, I sleep, I, I sleep more, I sleep further into the morning than people who have to get up, you know, at six for their kids or work or whatever. But, um, yeah, but it's just a struggle. And how many hours a night do you get? Probably on average, like six. Yeah. Six or seven. That's not bad, right? Well, you're a parent. (laughs) I was expecting it to be like three hours. (laughs) No, that, but that is like, if I have an early meeting and then I'm like, I'm sort of like in your, in the wife's boat where it's just like, you know, how late can I take something, you know, like that whole, that whole struggle. Because if it's five in the morning and you have like, say even a 10 AM meeting, I'm not going to try and take something at that point. Cause I'll just be zonked out. Um, so yeah, it's a constant struggle, but probably I know a lot more about American politics and culture because of it, because, oh, and just international. Cause that's when I'm like on, which is really bad for sleep hygiene or whatever, but I'm like online, like reading stuff, you <laughs> Read know, some like, Trump Twitter to put yourself to sleep. Yeah. yeah right. Well, that's the thing. I think he starts tweeting at like 2am in Australia. So it's a really uh, weird time. Like it can make me really anxious, but I have to also say on the flip side of all of this, I really like riding at night. Do you ride at night? No, I'm, okay. I'm worthless at night. So you first Here's my problem. I like to write right in the middle of the fucking day. All right. Like I, I like to think that I like to write first thing in the morning and I always try, but like usually things go best for me right around noon, hmm. but that's the most inconvenient time. Why? I don't know. Cause I feel like late at night or early in the morning, I can wedge it in cause it can't usually be the primary thing. You know, it's like, I can't interrupt other stuff that I'm doing. Um, 
I don't know. I guess it, it, really at this point, it's whenever I can do it. Right. I just yeah. got to make it happen. And is it true what, you know, people like parents, people like writers who have kids say that you kind of just make more use of the time that you have in theory, ideally anyway. Yeah. In theory. Yeah. I mean, you have, you know, yeah, you just have more demands on your time. So if you want to keep doing it, you got to find a way. Right. And like for a while I started the new year getting up at four thirty really early, which was great. And I always get so much done when I do that. It's totally crazy. But if I get up super early, I am extremely productive. But the problem is that living like that, the sleep situation has to be very, very carefully calibrated. If I don't get to bed early enough, then I'll burn out. Like if I go to bed at 11 and wake up at four 30 and I just keep doing that to myself, then the work suffers my cognitive function suffers everything suffers you know you have to get some rest right and that but that also means that like no one can be waking you up or right. you know, like that stuff you i gotta to be like solid. climbing and climbing into bed at nine o'clock and yeah you know being like everyone shh. <laughs> dad's gonna go insane <laughs> so um, it's hard to be you know it's hard to be disciplined i fell out of it i gotta get back into it but then just to get into that cycle i've got to have like two or three nights where i get almost no sleep Right. Why is that? Because because like, oh, like right now I'm used to going to I'm going to bed at like eleven or midnight now, and to like it's hard for me to just like okay I'm going to go to bed at nine tonight and get up at four. Right. You're going to go to bed at midnight, wake up at four, just power through. Um, but the beauty is, and I will say this, I'm bringing this full circle. Okay. With regard to having trouble sleeping, which I can I, I have those troubles. When I am working like a dog and getting up early, and pushing myself in that way. I sleep like a baby. I go to sleep. You know what I'm saying? When you're that tired, yeah. you have no trouble sleeping. Yeah. So the, the key is to just work yourself to the point of absolute exhaustion. <laughs> um, but that's the only time. So maybe that's right. the, you know, but also, like, if you, if you're working, if you're writing, then you don't have that anxiety. Like that's part of the anxiety at the end of the day is all the things that you didn't do, right. you know, or yeah, at least for me. And so, yeah, I feel like if I was having solid writing days every day, then I'd probably sleep better. Just knowing you did, you did the work you, you try. I mean, it might not be the greatest writing, but you got the words on the page Yeah, yeah. or on the screen or whatever. So, uh, you mentioned that you're Jewish, right? Like, where are you spiritually? Are you, you do yoga? Are you practicing Jew? Are you atheist? Like I always, I like to ask people this. Yeah. Um, I definitely cut, like we grew I grew up secular Jewish. So like just cultural Jews and, um, are there a lot of Jews in Australia? I mean, not compared to here. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I want to say a number. I want to be like, there are 50,000, but actually... It's just you. It's just you. (laughs) It's just just your family. family. (laughs) The Australian Jews. We just like floated (laughs) over there. Um, Yeah. But I guess, I think Sydney has like the Hungarian Jews and Melbourne has like a Polish Jew, the Polish Jews. And... um, You Polish? um, Yeah. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother was from Poland, but came to Australia when she was one. And my maternal grandfather was from Palestine and came when he was five. Okay. Um, yeah. Like fleeing, fleeing, well, I guess not uh, Palestine. Are you, you're not fleeing Palestine, are you? No, that was, um, no, I think his two older brothers kind of came to Australia and then the rest of the family to, to work in agriculture, just on farms. And then I think that his mom, my grandfather's mom was miserable and missed her sons. And so the whole family went by boat to Australia from Palestine and, um, they were farming too and they were only supposed to stay for a few years and then the depression happened and they couldn't get back. So like now they just stayed. The rest is history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here I am with this accent. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. So, um, but that's, I guess the thing about being Jewish in Australia, like one of the reasons the States is so comfortable to me is that like, especially in like these coastal cities and like a lot of, in a lot of like little pockets, it's just pretty, it's comfortable to be Jewish and everyone is kind of like Jewish, you know, like when I lived in the Bay area, everyone went to a Seder for Passover and, you know, everyone, or even, even if they didn't, it's not weird. And because it's a small population in Australia, um, like I remember going to university and just people had like never met a Jewish person and asked me, you know, really basic questions and like always, you know, and still they're all my friends ask like, what are you doing for Christmas? And it's just not in anyone's like consciousness that, you know, like Jewish people don't celebrate and stuff. So, um, yeah. So in some ways I feel like being Jewish in Australia was like, it's almost like I'm characterized by what I'm not or something. Cause it's, it's not, we don't have a happy holidays culture there. It's very much like Merry Christmas and it's pretty like sort of not some religious country, but you know, most people are, Christian still and that's sort of how people talk so um yeah I almost feel like it makes me feel a little like less Australian or something because I don't participate in that which is I guess why like communities end up being like the Jewish community in Melbourne is pretty insular um, did you hang out with mostly other Jewish people in Melbourne um as a growing kid, up as, yeah growing up yeah growing up probably like three quarters of our like family friends and stuff were also like secular Jews and then I've sort of moved away from that community um as soon as I could. <laughs> well, but it's, but it's fascinating though. Cause I was talking about this the other day. Like, uh, I envy the speaking, uh, to what we were talking about earlier about wanting to have a sense of community, mm -hmm. live someplace where you really feel like rooted and connected with everybody. I envy the way Jewish people, uh, hang out with one another. There's, there's a lot more cohesion among Jewish people. I was raised Catholic. I don't feel any of that. Right. I don't think Protestant people are like, where are the Protestants? But like <laughs> Jews hang out with each other. Yeah. You know, I, there is some of that there. And like, there's more of a, I guess there's just more of a community vibe. Yeah, that's true. But I, I, I tend to think that ex Catholics seem like they can, they kind of have a community, yeah, you know, we're just disgruntled. <laughs> the fuck was that all about? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, and that is a really nice thing about like, yeah, meeting a Jewish person over here or something. It's just like, you have this like weird. Well, why, why are common. Catholics always ex-Catholics? Like you don't hear people being like, I was a Jew. Like everyone's like, people are Jewish, even if they're secular Jews, but like people, but can you be a secular Catholic? No, I guess not. <laughs> it seems like an oxymoron. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> I just feel like there's like people who are like, can be a hypocrite. Probably <laughs> people love to like shed the Catholicism. I don't feel like people shed Protestantism as much or mm. something, mm. you know, and there are very good reasons to, you know, to want to disentangle yourself from the Catholic church. But I mean, I'm still, there's a cultural part of me, I guess that, especially cause my, my parents are from Louisiana. So I have a lot of family, right. like family roots down in new Orleans and everything. Um, and d down there, it actually is really like, I'm sure you sense that if you traveled in that part of the country, like the Christian thing down in the South is it's in the water yeah, in a way that it isn't in other parts of the country. I guess the Midwest a bit too. There are certain parts of the country where it's, where it's thick, but like the South it's a social thing. It's a cultural thing. It's deeply rooted. And I imagine if you were born and raised there, it would seem like very normal. Like this is just the way things are mm -hmm. yet. Another reason why it's important to go travel. Yeah. I was just thinking that like, you see this, like, I've, cause I've been on quite a few road trips in this country and yeah, you see like, you know, just huge churches on the side of the road and, um, the, and then like, I remember I once went on a road trip from New York to Texas and the, the radio just got more kind of, you know, Christian, like, you know, there were just more Christian stations, like the further South we went, but Louisiana and like New Orleans is really interesting. Cause there's like, that, it's a really seem, feeling, feels like a very spiritual, intense 
place, yeah. right? And it's not just Christianity. It's, yeah. You can like feel the ghosts. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know? And the aren't the graves above ground? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because of the because of the uh, it's you know the flood zone. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems that sort of seems symbolic. It's, it really is. It does feel like thick with spirits in kind of a cool way, and it's the, celebrated. And yeah, it's got a real deep history. Um, it's got a real dark history too. I mean, you know, that's where like the slaves arrived and there were like right. slave auctions right there on the, you know, right there in the city. And it's complicated. Um, do you see the movie get out? Yeah. Was, I was just thinking about that. movie. I love that fucking movie. Yeah, I can't so get it out of my weird. head. And I was thinking about, I don't know. I was talking to a friend of mine cause of course we're in LA and it's like the hottest movie. It's a really brilliant movie. Mm-hmm. It only costs $4 million. Oh, I didn't know that. It's making, it's going to make a mint. It's so it's like. It's the kind of movie like that one can dream one could actually make. Mm-hmm. It's like one location. You know what I'm saying? There's not like a lot of special effects, but it's like a really funny, it's a social, it's a funny movie. It's scary. It's thrilling, smart, social critique, perfectly timed in terms of what's happening in the country. Yeah. Like almost, you, you you can't really game it. I mean, you know, it's like the perfect movie for the moment kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I was trying to think of... You know, I don't know. It just, it, it also strikes me that r- having race and uh, the horror genre meld together is something that needs to happen more often. Like what better place to explore racial questions than in the context of like a horror movie Right. In yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's more honest in a way than yeah. like a straightforward, like slave movie or something. Cause it, it is like. Yeah, it's really, and it's really scary. And everyone in the theater was like, you know, there's just like, it was a very participatory audience yeah, when I was at the theater. Yeah. So that made, it's a kind of movie that like you really do want to see in a, in a community environment, um, uh, like in a theater, as opposed to like sitting at home and with your flat screen or whatever. Um, because the part of the fun for me was like everyone reacting. Mm-hmm. It's one of those movies that really generates a reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I also love a piece of writing or a piece of art that I feel like could only really be made by one person. And I just feel like Jordan Peele, the writer director is obviously so smart and so funny and has this experience writing, you know, kind of like political, political comedy for TV. Um, but you know, he's like, his mom's white, his dad's black, his partner. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't know anything about him. Okay. So Key and Peele, you know, they had the TV show and they're both actually biracial. Oh, they are. um, I I know nothing. It's a sketch show. (laughs) I know. You have kids. You can always use that. If you want to know anything about Elmo. Chef's table. Yeah. Chef's table and (laughs) Elmo. That's what I can tell you about. Um, yeah. So they had a sketch show on Comedy Central and I'm sure it's all online and on YouTube and it's hilarious and so on point and topical and brilliant. And yeah, so they're both biracial guys and, and then now his partner is a white woman. And, and, um, so it kind of almost felt like he was ex, ex, I don't know if it's exercising, exorcising, like, um, yeah, just that fear and anxiety and compli- and like sort of probably ambivalence. How, how has no one ever made about... that movie before? That's the other thing that made me, th- it's like such <laughs> right. the perfect conceit for a movie. Yeah. Yeah. But it felt like that outside, that inside out thing of just like, he's placed to make that movie. He has, you know, like, yeah. so I, and it was kind of, pretty flawless in the writing and yeah it was great i'm gonna write a horror movie about a dad <laughs> I'm, I'm sits in his garage <laughs> watching food related documentary television um it's hard you know it's hard to it's hard to figure out like what i mean do you ever sit around wrestling with like as a writer like what what am i meant what stories am i meant to tell mm-hmm. am i supposed to be doing this yes am i one of the chosen ones <laughs> 
<laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, cause there are people who really like, they have the gift and like they chant, I feel like they channel something like it feels like with that movie, for example, like everything was working. Mm-hmm. It's channeling something powerful. It's really resonating. It's making loud noise. And I know that there are pieces of art that make quiet noise, but for the, for the people that it's for, it's extremely powerful. And that's a totally defensible thing. Not every yeah. book has to make super loud noise. Mm-hmm. Not every movie has to be a blockbuster. Um, I don't know what I'm saying, but it's like, it's, I guess I'm just trying to think like, how do you, how do you write a story that's deeply meaningful, but also really resonates and is fun for people? Right. Like, how do you do all those things? That's, that's the <laughs> that's <goal>. fucking... <laughs> I mean, I make myself feel better by thinking like he probably has a ton of scripts, like yeah. in whatever, in the trash file or in the top drawer or whatever like you know it takes a long time to kind of put something together and make it seem just like effortless and fun and cohesive it's actually the first one i ever wrote and he wrote it in three weeks <laughs> are you shitting me yes okay I have thank no god idea. Like, I, I didn't know where i was gonna go <laughs> but it wouldn't just... surprise me it wouldn't surprise me you're like you know it's just like yeah maybe, but the thing too is that sometimes people do write very quickly but there's always a gestation period like, you know, yeah. all of his life experiences and professional experiences accrued. And then, you know, sometimes it can lead up to that. Like the guys who wrote Casablanca, I want to say, wrote it in a couple of weeks. I think I just talked about that on the show. But, right. You know, but sometimes you have these ideas that are sort of simmering in your head for a long time. And then, you know, suddenly it congeals or the timing is right or, you know, the stars align. Yeah. Like, how do you think that stuff works? Like, do you, do you get really woo woo about creativity? Like, do you think about like energy and the stars and you throw the I Ching and all that kind of stuff. Um, not really. No, not really. Although I did just like being in LA buy someone a crystal that was like for their creativity <laughs> and heart chakra <laughs> opening and sleep and stuff. But, um, I don't really know what it is. And then when it's going well and I like it, when it's going well, it doesn't feel like a normal thing. Like it doesn't feel like cooking a good meal or like the way other things feel good when they're coming together it does feel like i don't know if it's spiritual or if it's just like the unconscious like firing on all cylinders or something like that but it does it feels yeah it does feel like this um yeah this it's very like, satisfying yeah and i don't and it's you know but I, it's also just like impossible to replicate and you know it's like you can be sitting in the same place wearing the same outfit drinking a cup of coffee the same time that you know every day for like the next six months and it won't happen again. But, um, it's like playing golf and I don't even play golf. I've never played golf. <laughs> no, I've never played golf. So it, you might not believe me, but I swear to you, it's true. Hitting a golf ball, like crushing it, like making good contact and like hitting it far feels awesome. I don't care who you are. You don't even, you don't have to be athletic. You don't have to like golf, but I challenge anyone to go to a driving range and hit a golf ball really hard and not be like, that felt good. <laughs> it's like, I can imagine that even the sound seems like it'd be satisfying. Yeah. yeah Cause it's like, <laughs> you know, like, there's something like almost like ninja like about a good drive, but it's ex- an extremely difficult sport and you almost always suck at it. But like, even if you go out and play 18 holes and you have one good shot, that one good shot is enough to make you want to do it again. Do you know, right. that's, that's yeah. kind of like the analogy that I feel like, cause like writing, you'd have that one good time it's so deeply satisfying that it brings you back yeah. or, or you're yeah. just genetically predisposed to want to do this. And 
you know, that's, it's, it's a, a genuinely interesting question as to why people have this compulsion. Yeah. And the further you go into it, the more interesting that becomes, because I have done a little bit of teaching and I felt like the students, understandably, I was probably this way too, and going to writers festivals and stuff as an audience member, but the students were, um, yeah, they would just kind of want to know about like, how do you get published and how do you, you know, like, and how what do I get an agent? Like? Yeah. They and, haven't even written a novel yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's just like, also just, yeah, wanting to know like what that feels like. And then now it's like being published. What does that feel like and stuff? And then I'll always say, you know, like, it's, you know, like there's ups and downs and it's good and bad and it's wonderful and la la la. But like the best feeling you will ever have associated with writing is like when the writing is going well and they never, you know, they just roll their eyes. They never believe me because the other stuff, it is what you strive for and it does, you know, it is what you want to get to. And, um, yeah, so I don't know. So it becomes even more of a mystery because when, when you realize that you're really doing it, you know, well, not only for that feeling, but like hopefully for like other, you know, purposes, but I'm, I'm in complete agreement. Because, <laughs> well, but if you go through, if you go through the process, if you get an agent, if you find a publisher, if your book publishes and you go to the bookstore and you see it, or you do a reading, like all these things are nice, but it is, there's something anticlimactic about it. Like it's, it becomes, I think, very evident that the best time is when you're doing the writing and it's going well. The act of creation is the big thing. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're, when I'm doing it, I just want to get it done. <laughs> Isn't it like, I want to, I'm rushing, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. I just want to get this thing out of me. Yeah. Like, why would you want to rush something? That's the best thing. Because it's not, it's not usually enjoyable. You probably don't want to rush it when it's going really well. Maybe it's like but... watching Saturday night live. You idealize it in retrospect. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. never that good when it's happening. <laughs> but on Monday it's like, Oh, that was so great. Yeah. Yeah. I was up at four in the morning. I was channeling something. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So when do you go back to Australia? Um, this, this weekend. Oh, and hot little hands, hot little hands. It's out there. Yeah. It just came out in paperback. Yeah. How, how many it's published in Australia too? Yeah. Australia, the U S UK and Germany. Oh, look at you <laughs> translated into one language. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but how, how is the experience back home? Okay. Are there differences? I mean, have you done book stuff in every country that the book is published in? Have you gone to England and yeah, I haven't gone to England, but I, I was in, so I've obviously done stuff in Australia and Germany and the U S okay. Yeah. Is there a difference in terms of reception or like, is there a difference in terms of being an author whose book comes out in the United States versus an author whose book comes out in Australia? I imagine you have a pretty nuanced perspective of both because you, you, you know, you're from Australia and you've lived here for years. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the funny thing with me is I didn't really feel like I had a complete home turf, um, publication because in Australia I'd been away for so long that I kind of, and then when I went back to Australia, I just stayed inside for a year and edited the book and kind of didn't want to, you know, when you feel like everyone's going to ask me how it's going and no one cares, but you kind of get like yeah, right. paranoid about everyone's it. thinking about me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, so yeah. So then when the book came out there, a lot of people were like in the writing community were like, who even is this person? And like, yeah, it was kind of like they were, I wasn't complete, like some people welcomed me, but I wasn't, it wasn't a complete kind of like, if I'd lived there for seven years and published a book, like I would have had a huge launch and, you know, but it was sort of like, yeah, um, it seemed a little tempered, but I have had a lot of really good experiences there and it being a smaller pond and then probably also studying in the States at like a prestigious program helped. So, um, with some things, so yeah, I've had like done a lot of writers festival. I get to judge competitions and that kind that stuff actually continues there, which is really nice. Um, yeah. And in the States where it's like, for many years my writing community had been here um but it's also not my home so um 
Yeah. So that I, not I yet. guess, I guess <laughs> not until you meet some great guy from Philadelphia, settle down. <laughs> no intent to immigrate here, just in case CBP is listening. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, so it kind of felt like both, both were home turf or neither was home turf or something like that, but it is great to come from a, in some ways to come from a smaller, like it's like a smaller pond there. And so like, you know, I just got the equivalent of the NEA grant and, you know, like there are these opportunities and you're not competing with as many people. Um, and there are quite a few opportunities there, which, yeah, which is really great. I guess one interesting thing is before I moved to the States to, for that program, I was like in a band. I was making. Oh wait, stupid... we didn't even get to. I didn't even know yeah. you were in a band. Well, that's the thing. I was you like, dropped this make... at the end. <laughs> I was like making stupid movies with my friends. Like I just and I, yeah. I also wrote poetry and like just a bunch of different stuff. And um, then I got to the fellowship, and everyone said, "Are you a fiction writer or a poet?" Because those those are the two streams in that fellowship. And I was like, well, first I was like, I'm both. But then I realized they were asking what I was there for. So then I became a fiction writer. And I realized that um, everyone pretty much like people in that fellowship weren't really doing a ton of other stuff. They were just focused on writing and finishing their books. And I came to understand that like there's such a big population here. There's not really a a sort of like like a safety net, you know. Um, So you have to work really hard at whatever you want to do and kind of be yeah almost single minded about it. My friend calls it American nerdism where you kind of pick your one thing and you have to like nerd out about it because you can't just like, you know, when I was in Australia before I came, I was like working part time and then, you know, just like doing all these other art projects and you can't really, you don't really have the comfort here to do that. But I also think it makes people, I mean, well, you can, if you come for money, I guess, and you're comfortable, but, um, yeah, but I think it actually pushes people to not that I think there should be a safety net and stuff, but I think it does really push people to work really hard and focus and being around those people in that fellowship. Being manic and sleepless and it. miserable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that single mindedness. I, I mean, know. a I'm lot so of good work comes I'm out so, of it. I know, I know, I know. I've been thinking about this a lot. I really struggle with, like, what's the best way to live? Is it like, I know that it's like human achievement is a great thing. But like I've been reading biographies, I was telling or listening to biographies Mm -hmm. of a a lot of times it's like these, you know, like the Steve Jobs biography, for example, and you learn about how he treated people. Like he was just such a dick to people a lot of the time. Not always. I'm not saying he's a bad person, but he could be (laughs) like really bad. You know what I'm saying? Like just really rough on people. And sort of like astonishingly, for especially for somebody as intelligent as he was, just sort of astonishingly out of touch with how his words and actions might affect people. Right. And I start to think to my and like and just driven and and very like hyper competitive and ruthless. And I start to think to myself, is this what it takes to do big things in the world, in any field? And if so. That's fucking depressing to me. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, so the thought of like living in a place where there's a safety net and maybe people aren't so fucking ambitious. Right. But then you talk to people sometimes from places like that and they're like, I'm bored by it. I want to go to America and be part of the rat race and like really where things can happen, you know? And so the grass is always greener. Uh, I think that I just want to go live on a monastery. (laughs) (laughs) We've come full circle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We we also just need more stories of big 
things that happen in nice ways. You I'm know, sure like, that exists. And when you think about like TV and stuff, I just feel like there are these stories now of like, particularly with these like female led shows, you know, that are kind of have been coming up in the last few years where it does sound like things are done you know, in a really communicative way. And then, um, you know, and people try to be kind on set and be, you know, inclusive. And of course there's always going to be a power structure and not everyone's going to be happy. Um, are you suggesting it's because these are female led shows in some ways I am, I have to yeah. say, yeah. Um, not to say that there aren't, you know, ruthless women like, um, ruining your education system or whatever, <laughs> but, um, yeah, but you know, in some ways I do, I do think that's probably a new way of doing things. And when you hear those stories, it's like, great, like you still have to work hard, but there are, I, I hope that there, we, we hear more stories and that there are more examples of, of huge, you know, innovative things that happen in, in a different way. Like, you know, that people aren't, you know, punished and mistreated in order for it to happen. Just become a monster. <laughs> it's my next order of business. It's either a monster or a monastery. Yeah. I mean, they're going to be a complete so megalomaniacal, just heathen. But when you read, you know, when Leonard Cohen died, I don't know if you kind of read like the Remnick piece about. I his, did. Yeah. So did you feel like I want to do that or that is something I could do? Or, okay. You know? So here's what I think. I have complicated feelings about this because the, the, the Zen master that Leonard Cohen studied with was revealed to be, I believe, like a total... To, I mean, completely dark, uh, like rapey guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, criminal. So one wonders how effect like, and, and, you know, there, there are many stories like this with gurus and spiritual leaders. I mean, it's, uh, it's a place, uh, where fraud, you know, fraudulent people go to hide commonly. Um, and but there are, also it gives people a lot of power. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's a, I don't know, there's a lot of bad behavior and I'm not a huge fan of guru stuff at all. Uh, I'm very skeptical of it. And so I guess I question like how spiritually attuned could somebody be who's doing that sort of stuff on the side? What kind of education did he get from him? Right. Um, and then I was also noticing in that piece how he like starts screaming at David Remnick for being like five minutes late or whatever. Yeah. That's a fascinating moment. Yeah. yeah. I'm just like, dude, like, okay, well, I mean, that's probably not the middle way, <laughs> 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 but I, you know, I, but I also, uh, I found him very enjoyable ultimately. Like I don't want to, I don't, I also don't want to, uh, condemn him. I think we live right. in a culture where people are so quick to condemn people and he's just a flawed human being like I am. Uh, but within the, you know, within the realm of like the whole spiritual thing and wanting to live in a monastery, there's no, it's all imperfect. It's very easy to idealize it. Like watch chef's table and look at the cinematography. <laughs> I want to live inside that show. Uh -huh. You know, I just want like someone to just cook for me and, you know, in high def, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard. There's just, there's just no utopia. No. And, and it's probably just like the striving. It's probably just like Leonard Cohen being up on that mountain trying, you know, that's like what it's all about rather than yeah, reaching enlightenment or being a perfect person. It's just about, but I think it is also about, I personally think it's about trying to, trying to be better, well, trying and, to improve. And here's the thing. It might not be utopia, but I do believe there is such a thing as a community of people that is healthier than most. There is such a thing. You know, there are towns and cities where the quality of life and the happiness of the citizens or the people in the community is unusually high. We would be wise to ask why that is and to like find those, find those groups of people and learn from them. And I think, you know, when I, I don't know, when I observe certain monastic cultures, like at its best, I think it is a really deep way to live. Mm 
Uh, and especially, you know, when you countenance it against the way most people live, like you and I, and like the computers and the phones and the screens and the traffic and the ambition and the cost of living. And like, you just like, Oh, it's very easy to think to yourself, be really nice to just go out to the country, have a small room, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, no phone, uh, you know, my schedule, eat simple meals, have some friends, people come visit, you help take care of them. You have deep meat. You know what I'm saying? Like it can be like a totally, uh, awesome little ecosystem, but, uh, it's also got human problems too. Yeah. And it seems unlikely to just have that. Yeah. Consistently. If you can have that for a little bit, it's great. You know, like artist residencies are great like that. You know, That's you right. get your lunch delivered and then you get to have dinner with brilliant people and, and everyone sits around saying, why can't it always be like this? We should all move to like yeah. Marfa or wherever yeah. <laughs> and do it. And I think it's just those things are fleeting and you have to like take from them what you can and then try to recreate it in some small way, maybe in your life or. I'm yeah. going to start a Netflix documentary series called writer's retreat to shoot it in beautiful, you know, I'll shoot it with a, like a very accomplished cinematographers. I don't know if there's a way to do it though. Like the act of cooking is so visual. I think if you just filmed writers writing, it would oh my God. <laughs> probably wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, and I guess an audiobook recommendation along the lines of like a gurus or whatever is, um, Pema Chodron. Who's yeah, a, yeah. yeah. She's um, amazing. And again, an example of like a woman who is, you know, do, who is in, you know, kind of an influential position. And I think is, you know, really self-aware and in some ways seems, you know, yeah, she's like not self-critical, but she, I think she kind of questions herself. And well, she was a lay person until she was like 40 or something or in her thirties. Like she had a life. Right. Yeah. She yeah, didn't like, true. she has kids and grandkids. And yeah. Stuff. yeah. She divorced twice. Like she lived some life before she became a monastic, which I think makes her maybe able to relate to lay people better. And she's a Westerner. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm, I've read my, I've read some Pema. I'll read all that stuff. Yeah. So anything, she's anything? like very calming when I can't sleep sometimes. I'll just like throw in an audio book of her. Oh yeah. yeah. What's the one, uh, don't bite the hook or something. Do you read that one? I think, I think I've read all of them, but I don't remember the title. When things fall apart. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Abigail, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I'm glad I caught you before you returned, uh, you know, to Australia. Me too. I might, you never know. I might never be allowed back. I was going to say the immigration authorities are about to burst into my garage at any moment and remove you forcibly. It is happening now. It's just so fucked up. Yeah. Fucked up. Um, but I, I'm really glad to meet you and uh, I congratulate you on your book. Thank you. I wish you well on the film adaptation. I wish you well on your travels to Mexico city. (laughs) I wish you well on the novel that you just got started. Thank you. And I wish you well on, yeah novel work-life balance monastery (laughs) and just getting some fucking sleep just over just overall (laughs) psychological health yeah for all of us (laughs) amen (laughs) all right folks there you go that is abigail allman her debut story collection is called hot little hands available now from spiegel and growl available in uh multiple countries all over the planet check your local bookseller look online track it down hot little hands This podcast is all free. You can support it if you want over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can also support the show via PayPal. There is a link on the show's website over in the sidebar. If you'd like to email me, the address is letters at other PPL.com. Let me know what you think. 
have to say a thank you, as always, to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. So, it's a unique moment in our history. I'm feeling it big time. I like this song as a closer. This might, maybe, this might be my favorite closer from this small rotation of songs from Kill Rock Stars. If you've never taken the opportunity to imagine me dancing to this song, I'd like to give you a moment to uh, imagine me alone in a dimly lit room dancing to this. Does that do anything for you? So, call Republicans. Write to Lachlan Murdoch. Handwritten. I think handwritten is always better than email. There's something about a handwritten letter. Gets to the heart. It can melt even the coldest heart. You know, you can also write a review of this podcast over at iTunes if you want to do something nice for the show. If you feel gratitude to the show, you want to help the show. If you feel love in your heart for the show, go to iTunes, write a review. I think I might go see a movie tonight. I saw comedy last night. I'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. Call, write a letter to Lachlan Murdoch.